Hi, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm also one of the elders here. I'm trying to learn how to introduce myself because I don't know how to do that. Uh, if you are new this morning uh, and you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can take one with you. If you forgot one, you want to use one, you can grab one and use that this morning. On the communion tables to all out the room, there are sermon notes. And on the back of these sermon notes, there are actually questions. So if you have some friends you hang out with that you come here with, you can ask each other these questions. Okay, if you... <laughs> If you signed up to, to help the, um, this elderly gentleman that we're helping out on June 19th, and you signed up in the back for that, right after this service by the information table, there's going to be a short meeting. So if that's you, go back there and, and meet with them. I have also been asked to let you know that if you are a younger family and you feel like you're not connecting that well with other people yet, uh, we have small groups for you. Uh, sign up on the small group thing in the back. We'll plug you in. We have one that meets on Tuesday, one that meets on Thursdays, then other ones that meet all throughout the week. So if you want to get plugged into something, sign up on that. We'll plug you in. Uh, Saturday, June 26th. It's like, I thought we did announcements. Yes, we did, but I got more. Uh, Saturday, June 26th, we are doing kind of a, a cleanup kind of day around here. If you are a guy who likes to break things or a girl who likes to break things, this is the place and time for you. We're going to actually demo a bunch of stuff in a building that's across the way. We're going to over here. For some reason, we striped this whole parking lot over here, and nobody ever parks here. So everybody parks out there, and it's kind of like a whole mass of chaos. So we're actually going to stripe the parking lot out there on that day. Um, we're going to reset, I think, some of the lights in the parking lot. So if you're a woman, you come to women's Bible study, it's always dark. Hopefully you now you won't get mugged on the way to your car because you'll have lights. Yay! So we're going to look at doing some lights. We're going to be building out some stuff. So if you're interested, sign up in the back. As many people want to come, I guarantee you we will have stuff for you to do. Yay! And lastly, uh, as Eric said, our softball teams do start their games tomorrow night. But if you are someone who can't make it to like weekly games, but you kind of want to play softball with Elman a little bit, today at 2 p.m. we are having practice with both of our uh, co-ed teams. And you can come out and practice with us. We'll probably have a little scrimmage game. So 2 o'clock, Rodenberger Park. It's the park that's out behind uh, Kmart on Sunrise, then over the hill. and You'll see them out there. You, right? You can't miss Britt. Right? He'll be out there, woo, yeah, throwing yellow softballs. You'll find him. Go play with him. you have a lot of fun. All right, why don't you guys stay with me? You're reading God's Word. This is Mark chapter 16, verse 7, and it says this, But go, tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would understand our lives in the context of the story that you tell, the story that you narrate for us we would surrender to and that we would be those who worship you and love you by how we live, knowing that we are connected with you. Amen. Have a seat. If you have a Bible, open to Esther chapter 1. This is Esther week 2. I didn't even get to Esther last week. So this week we're in chapter 1. Uh, last week I gave you a whole bunch of history before we actually hit Esther. She would understand what we're starting to go through. I gave you uh, history about the Jews and the Persians and, and a whole lot of prayer. Uh, this week could actually be called my introduction, part two, because it's my second introduction. I think you'll actually like this morning. I, I usually beat up on you guys a lot. Today, I'm going to give you great encouragement. You're going to walk out of here going, I feel very encouraged, which, which is a good thing sometimes when you go to church. Uh, a lot of people have looked at the book of Esther like I told you last week, and they have a problem with it because it's written like a story. And they're like, well, it can't be true because it reads too much like a play, like a story. 
Well, I will tell you, God loves a good story. God loves to tell stories. He has created all of eternity as one big story to show His goodness, His love, and His redemption. And the book of Esther is no exception. So as we, as we jump into this, I'll give you a little bit of history, and then we're going to work our way into story. So Esther 1.1 starts like this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Some of your Bibles may say Ahasuerus. That's actually Hebrew. Xerxes is Greek. Uh, he says, The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. So here's a map. He has a ton of area that is underneath him. Now, and just in case you didn't know which Xerxes this was, it's the one because we all wonder, right? Oh, which Xerxes was that? Maybe not. Okay. <laughs> And again, some people say, well, this is a story, it's, it's made up. And one of the th- reasons they say this is because they point to this verse, and they, it says 127 provinces. And it says, well, during the time of King Xerxes, the most they had was 20 to 29 provinces. You go, oh, see, it must be a story. It can't actually be historical and true. Well, we'll fix that right now. If you look at the original languages, Persia had satraps, and they, and they were governors over c- certain areas, just like the United States has states and, and governors in those states. The, uh, the areas underneath those governors were called satrapies. It comes from the word for realm. The actual word used here, if you care, is the word Medina, and it means these realms underneath these governors. And so there could easily be 127 of those. Ta-da! Okay, verse 2. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne. This literally means he sat securely on his throne. When he comes into power, he quells some uprisings in Egypt and Babylon. So now he sits securely on his throne in the citadel of Susa. At the end of his his reign, Xerxes spends all of his time trying to build up Susa and Persepolis. Uh, Susa's location, uh, I put an arrow right here. See right there? There's Susa. Uh, it, It is a central location for this area. All the roads from Persepolis, uh, Sardis, Ecbatana, they all lead through Susa. As a matter of fact, in 324 B.C., when Alexander the Great's troops capture this city, it is the place in all of Persia where tens of thousands of his troops have mass marriages to the beautiful Persian girls. And it takes place in Susa. So it says, In the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and nobles and provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed his vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. 180 days, he throws a party. That's a party right there. Yeah, it's, it, This is probably to rotate all the state officials through, but he gets to be there for all of it. You know, it's like, woo, okay, next, next. Woo, I got a party going, woo. You know, imagine. It's great. Uh, Tesius, who was the court physician to King Artaxerxes, said that as many as 15,000 guests were entertained at once at certain Persian banquets. Huge, huge party. Verse 5, When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So if you made it to the end of the party and you were still standing, you got to go to another special party. And this one lasted seven days. Now, the first party is called a doke, and this actually means banquet. The second party is called a potos. Potos means drinking party. That, there's the party for you. Uh, the, 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 this term, potos, this, this was given to the men who were there at the end of this 180 days, and they got to go. You get a bunch of drunk guys together, crazy stuff happens. I'll show you that next week. Some crazy stuff happens because they've been drinking just a little too much, and it's, it's really crazy. Anyway. 
Persian palaces, in the middle of them, they usually had like an enclosed garden that was surrounded by a wall. And so you had this park. The actual word for this is paradisos, which is where we get our word paradise from. Trees, wild animals, running water. It's like a game preserve surrounded by a wall. The second party that King Xerxes actually has is in a covered garden so the men can get away from these women and they can drink in peace. Verse 6, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords and white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. Wow, that's a mouthful. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. That means as much as you want. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Now, archaeologists have actually uncovered much of Xerxes' palace, and they verify the accuracy of the opulence that's described here. The person narrating this account has intimate knowledge of what this actually looked like, intimate knowledge of Persian life. And then in verse 9, this is where you meet a lady named Vashti. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. This is probably because the women weren't invited to the men's Oktoberfest, so they have a party in the other area. Uh, Vashti becomes a very short player in the story. In chapter 1, she's only a few verses in here, but Vashti sets up the story. Without Vashti, there would be no Esther. Esther starts with this whole little thing, almost seems like it to get you to this woman named Vashti, Xerxes and Vashti. And again, the whole purpose of Vashti is to get you to Esther. But in God relating a story, you meet some people you might not ever see. In history, the only known name of one of Xerxes' wives was a mistress. Now, some people have tried to say, well, that's Vashti in another language. It could be and it might not be. But I'll tell you that Xerxes had plenty of wives and plenty of concubines. But God throws in the name of this unknown person into play. And she becomes one of the most noble people in chapter 1 of the book. We'll look at more about Vashti next week, but I want you to see and focus on is that God cares about story. God takes someone who you might not ever notice or ever see and throws them in the midst of a story. You may feel like your life is like Vashti. Oh, I'm only there a few verses and I'm gone. But God cares intimately about your story. Esther is a story. Every character in Esther has a backstory. They're connected to other people who have lived this story. In one sense, we are all connected by God's story that is unfolding around us. In Revelation 1.9, John says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. What John is saying is that he is connected to these people because of the suffering that he is going through. He connects with them because he is part of the body of Christ. And again, if someone was to write your story, you may feel like Vashti, a couple of verses and forgotten, but it is never forgotten God. Now again, I'm going to give you great encouragement this morning and try and bring this all together for you, this idea of story. If you look at the front covers of, of all of the sermon notes, it says it all comes back to story because it does all come back to story. We are a people who share a fundamental identity as old as the earth itself, whose we are, where we are, where we are going, and what we are a part of. It is much more than we could ever see or imagine. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, is my paraphrase, he essentially says, if you could see yourself for what you are going to be, but you could see it now, you would be completely frightened by yourself. It's an amazing thought to think about that. We belong to a story because the God of Scripture has narrated a story for you and I. 
but we, unlike Esther, get to know where the world, what the world is about. We know where everything is going. We do not have to fear death and loss of loved ones because we know, we know. The scriptures should be read as a record of what God has been doing. The core of Christianity is stories, true accounts that help us to understand what God has been doing since creation to consummation. God has a purpose for everything. Sometimes people get very confused and we ignore the primary mode that God used to speak, which is story. God loves story. You learn about the account of, of uh, redemption. And what do you learn about in story? You learn about the exodus. God pulls his people out of slavery and he brings them into freedom. And, and you have this huge story that it all teaches redemption. When you want to learn about being a blessing to the world, that you and I are not called to suck up all God's resources. We are, to, we are blessed by God to give it away and to help people around us. We learn about the story of Abraham. When we understand that we are a kingdom of priests, we are those who love God and are supposed to bridge the divine to this world. We learn about the Israelites at Sinai. And when we want to understand the providence of God, we look at Esther. Because God is a good storyteller. And I don't think these are fairy tale. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, little movies that came out, I don't know if you heard about those or not, uh, he was talking to his friend, uh, C.S. Lewis, and he was instrumental in leading C.S. Lewis to Christ. And what he said to C.S. Lewis is, our story is true fairy tale. Because our king has come and he has slayed the dragon and he has rescued and redeemed his people. When we understand our life that fits in the greater story of God's story, we cannot be selfish because you cannot make the story about you and understand the story because it's God's story. Don Davis writes this. He says, You were meant to have a story so big, so broad, so majestic that when you put yourself in it, you understand what real life is about. We are a people who should make God's vision our vision. We can never make sense of our life by appealing to our life. We need to behold the one who has written the story. This is the reason why week after week we get together and we tell the same story. We're always talking about Jesus because Jesus transforms our lives. We think about the life of the scriptures together, how it changes people. And we seek God's glory because he is the author and the finisher of our faith, of our story. Open in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And I will kind of show you how this works out. New Testament about halfway through just in case you need the help. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Anybody want to open that door? I'm hot. Not in a literal sense. These are always great things for the, for the podcast, by the way. We try to keep it closed because those trees like to attract flies and they'll boom right in the door, but they just kind of sit up here and bother me, not you, so we're good. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So whose likeness? It's Christ's likeness as the Spirit works out His will in us. But you read these verses and you think, what, what does that mean? Well, I, I, I don't get it. And then you understand the story. Uh, in, for the Israelites, every time Moses went in to see God after he's brought them out of slavery and they're wandering around in the desert during this whole thing of redemption, he would go in to visit God. He would wear a veil over his face. God would come down. Moses would go into the tabernacle. Uh, the scriptures tell you that the Israelite community would stand up when he was in there. And then Moses' face, after talking with God, would actually glow. So Moses put a veil over his face so people couldn't see as, that the glow was temporary and that it went away. And so Paul, in context of the story, says when we come to Christ, we get to speak to him. 
face to face, without a veil, as his kids, heathen, evil, Gentile Jews, we can all be cleaned by the blood of the Lamb. And he says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness. And it makes sense within the context of the story. The whole idea of law and grace you have Moses who, who writes the law. The law had over one overarching purpose, to condemn people, to administer true justice. And it shows how crooked that we are as a people. And so Paul takes this whole story of law throughout the, the whole Torah. And Paul puts it in the New Testament that says, we no longer rely on legalism. We don't create our own Ten Commandments and try to live our own ten, our system and try and keep it. The law has one thing it is good at. It is good at showing you that you cannot keep it. Fleshly power is impotent. And so when he talks about grace, it makes much more sense in context of the story. You understand? It's amazing. Bernard Anderson writes this. He says, Many people lack any awareness of the Bible as a whole. They know a few snapshots of the scriptures here and there, like the 21st Psalm or the Sermon on the Mount. But they are very hazy, if not completely ignorant, within which the passages have their greater meaning. We are to be a people who are transformed with ever-increasing glory. And the Bible is God's script for the greatest single story that we have ever known, the redemption of mankind. But God's glory for you and I means that we can now understand and get a sense of what God has been doing since the very beginning. Story. Jesus working in our lives didn't start with us. But it does relate to us. It relates to our house and our car and our marriages and our kids and our life. But that is not where it began. God is alive, and true story starts in eternity past and culminates with recreation, creation to recreation. The story God tells, he is the one who enters into it as the chief actor on the stage. And to get all of this means you have to be steeped in story. Like, it, like tea sits in water, and, and the longer it sits, the stronger it gets. We're supposed to be steeped in his story. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the Bible story in under five minutes. I'm a professional. I can do, don't try this at home. You may hurt yourself, okay? The eternity past, eternal God exists in light and glory and beauty, and he determines for his own sake that he would create a world, a universe, and out of that he would draw and call for himself a people who would be his jewel. And he swore by himself, because there is nothing greater than himself, that he would accomplish this task, because God understands all possibilities and all outcomes simultaneously. And he determines that I'm going to save a people out of the earth for myself. But Satan, the great and beautiful and powerful angel, a prince of God, leads a rebellion against God because he thought he knew how to be God better than God knew how to be God, much like we all do. He enlists the rest of creation in his rebellion, and mankind willfully sins against God. Because of mankind's willful rejection of God, the entire creation was then subject to chaos. It is thrown into confusion, and the human race, including us, were doomed. Creation itself was stained and broken. But God, out of mercy and sovereign pity, determines he would save a people all because of love, his great heart, his matchless mercy. His kids who sin against him, God comes and he clothes them after the fall. He offers Noah grace. He scatters the disobedient at the Tower of Babel. He then he takes a man named Abraham at 75 years old and he gives him a promise. From you, from your seed, out of all the nations on the earth, I will use you and the nations will be blessed because of you. And then God confirms that promise in Abraham's son Isaac, then in Isaac's son's Jacob. And at the end of Jacob's life, Jacob looks at his son Judah and he prophesies and says, Out of all my sons, the scepter of the kingship will come through you. 
than the Israelites. They are in slavery in Egypt, and God brings them out of slavery, the whole idea of redemption. He takes them to Sinai. He establishes them as his covenant people. Then they get their country there in Israel, and God raises up a little shepherd boy named David, who up to this point was only good at dodging sheep poop. And so God takes him and he says, you know, you're going to be king. The prophet who is anointing David as king is like, it's got to be anybody but this guy. He's literally smaller than all of his brothers. And God says, I chose David. And even though God is faithful, he raises up over 20 kings in Israel. Only eight of them were righteous. And so God sends them to start over in captivity, which is where the story of Esther actually takes place. But God brings them back, rebuilds the temple, the city, the wall, and then nothing for 400 years. And then an angel shows up one afternoon to a young girl, maybe 13 years old, and informs her that she would have God's promised son. And when Mary's response is, I am a servant of the Lord. Her son grows up in anonymity for 30 years, then enrolls a scroll one day, and Temple reads Isaiah 61, says, I am the one. Today I am the Messiah who will come with justice and liberality and wholeness and restoration. And the black-eyed peas saying, let's get the party started. Then Jesus, the son, comes and he heals and redeems and he casts out demons. He walks on water. And the last week of his life, he goes to Jerusalem and announces himself as the Messiah. And he dies on the cross for our sins, that which separated us from God and each other. Three days later, everything is changed. Everything. He awakens from death. Death is destroyed for 40 days. He meets with his people and he tells them the good news. He ascends to heaven. Ten days later, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit arrives and God calls all people together. Gentiles, nobodies, no spiritual background. We can all come in, be part of God's family because of the grace offered to us through God's Son. And one day the Father will nod to the Son, time will be no more, and we will shine like suns, and the whole creation is redeemed. Ta-da. You're like, wow, that would break me. Have you ever looked at the book of Genesis and thought, well, my name isn't in the book of Genesis. I don't get it. Or you look at the book of Revelation and say, my name's not in the book of Revelation. That's because the story doesn't begin and end with you. It begins and ends with Jesus. This is a story you need to be a part of, not the other way around. I heard this story one time. It's of a, of a ladybug and a moth and a grasshopper. And you love how these start, right? And so they're, they're on a banana leaf on the Amazon River. In a wet season, the average width of the Amazon River is 120 miles across. Okay, that's... Gigantic. So the ladybug, he's got, he's got a good stick on, on this leaf, on this banana leaf, and he says, I'm going to direct our leaf in a different direction than the Amazon River. I've been lifting weights. I've got some you know, ladybug packs, ladybug six-pack. I'm, I'm, I'm good to go with this. I'm going to move forward with my plan. What is the likelihood that leaf is going to go any different direction than the Amazon? Zero. Zero. You and I are people who simply live on this banana leaf. And we need to simply relax and learn how to ride with style. We, we went through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians tells you over 30 times, be in Christ, in Christ. And someone asked me, what does that mean, in Christ? Ride the banana leaf with style. Stop sticking your stick in the water and going, no, 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 I want to do this. I want to do this. And you simply relax and ride the leaf where God wants to take it because it's his story. We didn't make the story. We didn't do any of this. He determined to do this. And the fact that I believe means he wanted me in his kingdom. I look forward to seeing the city that God himself made because I get to be part of his story. It is his story. And when we become part of his story, God says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are created then to do these good works. Part of riding that leaf doesn't mean we just get lazy. It means that we start to be about his business. We start being about his story. 
Beholding the glory of the Lord means we reorient our lives. It's not just finding a few moments to read your Bible by yourself. It is living the story with your life. If you are tired and exhausted of always trying to do it yourself, throwing your own party like Vashti while the king throws a great banquet in the other room, you need to realize the story never started with you. It started with him. The, the church, it is not a building. It is the people. And when we gather, we gather because of this story. And the band sings songs. And we sing songs about this story. And then a preacher, sometimes he's better than others, you know, that guy. But he talks and we talk about this story. And then we embody and enact the story when we take communion. And then we live our lives, the entirety of our lives, saturated by this story, by how we live outside these walls. We are all connected to this story. Even if at some point to you it only feels like a couple of verses, we are part of his story. We need to be done with our banana leaf spirituality. Because when you are gone, the story will still continue. You know, when the Amazon meets the sea, it is 250 miles across. It just gets bigger. It just gets bigger. You know, one day you may get a fatal disease, H1N1. You get the swine flu, and you're gone, okay? I don't even, whatever, okay? And you're gone. If you trust in Christ, everything will fade to white, and you will never be alone. Even if you have no family member, no husband, no wife, no kids. Because when you truly open your eyes, the God of the universe grabs your hand. And the next thing you see is him pulling you into the next part of his story. And he has been through that himself. A timeless God tasted death so we could be part of the story. What you will see later in Esther is that she almost becomes an Ephesians 2.10 type of woman. Because she finally commits to her calling and does what God calls her to do. She pursues it even though it may kill her. So when you engage in the story, you pursue it. Pursue it. Psalm 27, verse 4 says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. David wants one thing, and that is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Because when you do and become part of that story, your entire life changes. We should seek that with a passion. You know, Moses in Exodus 33 gets so excited at one point, he shouts out to God, Show me your glory! And God says, I'll show you what I can. I'll show you what I can. God wants to respond to a person who truly wants to see and know him. He wants to respond. Not just see him and know him so you can make it all about your own life. You see him and know him so you make it about his life. Open to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians, chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. See, it's right after that book we were in for 19 weeks, so... You should be able to find it. Your Bible's probably creased right there, so two pages to the right. At this point, Paul, and his, he, is, he is balding, he is bow-legged, if the histories can be believed. He sits in prison at the end of his life, and this is what he writes in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. He says, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom's sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness that comes from... Uh, of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God is by faith I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow to obtain attain the resurrection from the dead now leave your finger there because we're going to keep going on in, in just a moment but Paul says it's because he's steeped in the story you could go to Daniel and David and Peter and Mary and Ruth and I believe Esther and the people who live the story end up pursuing God because God pursues us like a great dad chasing us down like kids running into traffic and he grabs us and pulls us back. 
Joshua 1.8 says, Do not let this book of law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Psalm 1, 1-3 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Isaiah 55.17, Evening, morning, and noon I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. Why do they do all that? Because they have committed themselves to God's story. Every person who has been infected by this story pursues it. We realize not only that we, we want it, but we need it. And it's not always easy. Morning, noon, night. Psalm 119, verse 62. David says, at midnight I cry out to the Lord. I mean, most, most of you guys probably, it's like, it's 10, I've got to go to bed now. You know, you know, at midnight he does that. The point is that we need this relationship. We need this story, so we devote ourselves to it. Esther has a story. Vashti has a story. You and I have a story. And wouldn't it be a shame to live your story your entire life and ignore the most important story of all, the one that God calls you to be a part of? C.S. Lewis says the key to the Christian life is right pretense. There are basically two kinds of pretense or pretending. The kind where you're, you're lying to somebody else and you're trying to make yourself better than you are so people think you're really cool. But there's another kind of pretension where you realize who you truly are and you simply live consistent with who God truly calls you to be. If you believe in Jesus, you are a child of God. God wanted you with all of his heart to stand in the new order with his son to be part of that story. And so we grab hold of everything he sets out for us. Philippians 3:12, starting where we just left off with Paul, says, Not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You may be married or not. You may have kids or not. You may have a job or not. But none of those things are as fundamental to you, your life, as Jesus and his story. And you will not even know how to love a woman or a man or kids or even live the story if you don't understand in the context of story, God first loved you. We don't know what it is to even be human apart from God's story. And I believe when we truly understand that story as a community, as a, as a church, we'll be set free to display it. People's lives will change because they come in contact with you because you have interacted and come in contact with that story. And you might be a, a drug addict at one point in your life or, or a totally lazy guy. Maybe you're something as evil as a country western music singer. I don't know. But we all get to be people now who share our lives in that story. And we do that through hospitality and generosity and the story that God now does in us. You get to tell people about his story. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You may think that your story doesn't mean much and that no one cares, but God does. Because when you connect with him, it's his story. Live the story. Be encouraged because it is a great story. This morning, we will be people who tell the story through through communion. This story of what Jesus has done to make us into new people. How he loves and, and came to redeem us. That story we tell there. We're going to tell the story through song. Uh, the band apparently can't hear me because they're all sitting around the lounge back. Someone want to get them for me? Anybody? Anybody want to? 
Thanks. Nice paid attention. Good job. <laughs> come on. So the man's going to come up, and we're going to sing songs about this story uh, so we can tell it together as, as a people. Uh, there are going to be deacons and elders in the back for prayer, and you can pray and become part of the story. We're going we're gonna to give. There's offering boxes on the sidewall and in the back, and we give because it's part of the story that our God has redeemed us, and giving is part of the story where we give to God because He gave so much to us. We're gonna, we can interact with each other and tell this story through fellowship where you guys get to know each other. Get involved in a small group. Just get to know somebody else and talk to them and start sharing your life with them and what God's story is doing in and through you. It is an amazing thing that God allows us as a people to be part of the story. He calls us into it. He narrates the story. We simply need to trust Him. Be greatly encouraged because it is a great story and He has called you to it. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand more and more this story. That we would stop trying to make the story about ourselves and we would understand the story is yours. It's not just about you, it is you. So I ask that you would take our hearts and our minds and our lives so we would understand the great grace you have given us and that we in turn would live as great representations of your story. We thank you for being so good to us. Have us understand how good that actually is. Amen.